This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, May 18th, 2022, Episode 90, Medieval True Crime 4, In the Shadow of the Gallows Pole. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And we're back from our semester-long hiatus to kick off a new run of episodes for the summer by first wrapping up our Medieval True Crime miniseries. Uh, this is part four, and this will be the last installment of the series proper, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. But that does not mean we're done with tales of murder and felony. In fact, I know we will be returning to the coroner's roles at some point, uh, and maybe I'll call that part five of the series, or maybe that will just be another episode of Medieval Death Trip. But today's text gives us a nice terminal point for the series, since it takes us to a 15th century execution, the end, or at least one end, of the judicial process of criminal investigation, and the end of our time period. But it also brings us back, in a way, to where we started with this miniseries. But we'll come to that. We're going to hear about two different executions in today's text, but they both involve the most common mode for putting someone to death in the Middle Ages, hanging. Now, if you're eager to get to the medieval text, then you can use the chapter feature to skip, because otherwise, buckle in, we're going to take a bit of a long journey into the subject of hanging and other medieval forms of capital punishment. So, hanging was one of the most versatile methods of execution applied to a wide range of capital crimes, probably because it was relatively cheap and easy within the resources and capabilities of any locality. That said, uh, there was, across Europe, a conventional matching of type of execution to type of crime that we see referenced in texts, and according to convention, hanging was the punishment for thieves, and that's how we see it used in today's text, whereas murder, rape, and aggravated theft were to be punished with breaking by the wheel, a topic I want to come back to in a future episode. Heresy and sodomy were punished by burning— uh, crimes of impurity needing the purging fire to take away their stain, uh, though arsonists were also burned in a simpler let-the-punishment-fit-the-crime kind of logic. Drowning was prescribed primarily for female offenders who committed infanticide or crimes against religion or moral transgressions like adultery. Certainly a link to witchcraft and devilish temptation is in there, which seems to have some deep traditional connections to ritualistic drownings in pre-Christian European cultures. And, of course, if you were of the nobility and were found guilty of most any of these crimes, you had a customary right to a more dignified, and compared to most of these other methods, considerably less painful, execution by decapitation. In fact, many appeals we have court records for are not attempts to get a guilty verdict overturned, but instead are efforts to get a sentence to a more dishonorable form of death commuted to decapitation by the sword. Of course, there are plenty of exceptions to these standard conventions. Uh, for one thing, particularly infamous crimes would be met with particularly brutal sentences, drawing and quartering and such. Uh, if you've committed regicide, for example, no degree of nobility is going to spare you from a dramatically horrible death meant to broadcast a strong message that king slaying is unacceptable. And just generally, despite the conventional assignment of certain sentences to certain crimes, you will find murderers and witches being hanged, uh, though 
The inverse is not quite true. Uh, outside of atrocities of war, you're not likely to see, say, a common thief being burned or drowned. But all these other forms of state-sanctioned death are fodder for their own possible future episodes, so let's turn our attention back to hanging. Hanging in the Middle Ages had one key categorical difference from what hanging became from the mid-1800s onward. Modern-era hanging has as its goal the dramatic breaking of the neck and rapid death, not instant death, but not lingering. Really, what we call hanging now in terms of capital punishment is not hanging, but dropping, with the sudden sharp stop at the end of the rope being the death blow. That kind of hanging emerged from a 19th century humanitarian and utilitarian desire to minimize suffering in executions. There is a virtuous, moral, uh, even sentimental component to that movement, and there is also a brutal, industrial, efficiency-oriented component to recognize, too, uh, before we start harping on the barbarity of medieval executions. In the 19th century, you have arguments about the cruelty of making the convicted person suffer that sit right alongside arguments essentially about building the better mousetrap. What's the most hassle-free way to kill someone? Can you build a killing machine that delivers consistent, reliable results every time? The Middle Ages, it must be said, did not have the same concern over minimizing suffering or even being efficient and mechanical in going through the process. So, in a way, you might say that while less humane, medieval executions were a bit more human, but that includes the whole spectrum of human emotions, from pity to cruelty, from piety to disgust. I'll touch on that a bit more after the texts, uh, but what I've been heading toward in all this is that medieval hanging was not about breaking the neck. It was about slow strangulation. We're talking several minutes for a hanged person to die, uh, or even much longer in some cases, depending on individual anatomy and weight and the qualities of ropes and angles and all the other factors involved. The process was highly ritualized and enmeshed in a system of quite ancient symbolism. Here's an example of a sentencing formula for a hanging from southern Germany and Switzerland. Quote, This poor man shall be hanged on the high gallows by a new rope between heaven and earth, so high that his head shall almost touch the gallows, and beneath him the leaves and grass may grow. Here he shall be strangled to death by the rope so that he will die of it and be undone, and his body shall remain on the gallows so that it shall be given over to the birds in the air and taken away from the earth, so that furthermore neither persons nor property may be damaged by this man, and others shall witness his punishment as a fright and a warning. End quote. I found this quoted in Mitchell B. Murbach's The Thief, the Cross, and the Wheel, Pain and Spectacle of Punishment in Medieval and Renaissance Europe. Uh, a book published in 1999, which I've relied on for much of my capital punishment history so far in this episode, uh, though Murbach here is taking this quotation from yet another scholar, uh, Richard Duhlman, from his book on executions, Theater of Horror. Murbach points out that while this sentencing formula and many like it evoke a fairly consistent set of ritual requirements, clearly freighted with cosmological symbolism, most medieval writers almost never comment on or explain what these symbols are or what they mean. Uh, not that that has stopped modern scholars from theorizing. Uh, Murbach hits back particularly hard at those who have tried to link these to sacrificial rites of Germanic paganism, which he describes as a field, quote, laced with ersatz anthropology and mired in incestuous scholarship, end quote. Not that he rejects entirely the survival of ancient pagan practices— 
uh, but rather he doesn't see any evidence for the survival of the meaning of those practices into the minds of medieval spectators. Uh, And furthermore, whatever that quote-unquote original pagan meaning was is not accessible by modern scholars, uh, short of divine revelation or belief in the collective unconscious, which is itself, for all practical purposes, belief in a mystical force. Um, But even working with what we have, as a responsible scholar should do, uh, we see we don't have much to base conclusions on. Murbeck asks, quote, why an unused rope? Who can say? End quote. Uh, And I have to say, when I hear that, my mind jumps to the notion that maybe the requirement for a new rope is a protection against cheapskate local authorities using a worn-out old rope for this stigmatizing process, uh, or reusing the same rope over and over, such that you end up with executions failing because the worn-out old rope snaps in the process. So the requirement of a new rope is a kind of quality control method more than anything else. But as plausible as that sounds to me, how do you prove it if there's no medieval text that lays out that justification? It's just stuck as speculation with just as much weight to it as the interpretation that it had to be a new rope because originally the rope along with the victim were presented as offerings to the gods and you wouldn't offer a god a used gift. However, a few elements of these execution formulae can be pegged to known cultural values or beliefs. For example, many medieval death sentences involve the dissolution of the body, either as part of the mode of death, such as burning it up or dismembering it, or through long-term exposure, leaving bodies on the wheel or hanging from the gallows until they decay. This seems to tie into various beliefs about the purification of the community and of the criminal him or herself. The sentence of death is a way of permanently exiling the criminal, not just from the local community, but also the community of humanity. We see this exclusion theme more in the early Middle Ages, and as we move on into the later Middle Ages, the rhetoric and symbolism around execution sort of inverts into an attempt at reintegration, uh, into a greater concern with saving the soul of the criminal. Their suffering through execution becomes a kind of purgatorial process that can help the criminal atone for their crimes and thus make peace with God and the community as opposed to the older view that their suffering in the execution was merely a preview of what they were about to be experiencing in hell. That said, even if in the later Middle Ages the criminal's soul is saved, their dead body is a separate matter, and we still see them being left on display to rot, partially as a warning and deterrent to other criminals, but also, going back to that earlier exile logic, You let the beasts of the air and the natural forces take the body away so that you aren't polluting your own graveyard with the criminal body. And no doubt beliefs about tainted bodies returning from the dead also lie behind this common focus on seeing those bodies utterly annihilated. Uh, If you haven't heard our episode on the revenants of William of Newborough, uh, episode 31, then you might go check that out for more on the supernatural side of things here. Interestingly, We don't see this exposure of the body happen in our two 15th century hangings from today's text. Uh, Both bodies are taken down for burial the same day. I'm not sure how much that has to do with the changing mores in England or specific local factors or the nature of the crimes or what, but as we see our convicts making arrangements for their own Christian burial, this certainly could reflect that shift in attitude from execution as the ultimate excommunication to execution as a way to save souls. 
Okay, I have just one more historical detail to clarify before we hear our text, and this is something probably quite well known to many of you, but worth a footnote just in case. In one of our texts, we will see a convicted criminal plead the benefit of clergy. The existence of this practice highlights a key feature of medieval law, which is nicely expressed by legal scholar Harold Berman, who writes, quote, Each of the peoples of Europe had its own rather complex legal order, but none had a legal system, in the sense of a consciously articulated and systematized structure of legal institutions clearly differentiated from other social institutions and cultivated by a core of persons specially trained for that task. End quote. Again, this is one of those things that I think a modern person struggles to perceive clearly in narratives of medieval crime. I think we in the 21st century struggle even to conceive of a legal system that has no police force, uh, no dedicated institution of law enforcement. For us, the law is metonymic for the police. So to add to an already rather alien structure of law enforcement, the idea that there wasn't even the law, there were many different, sometimes competing orders of law that might apply in any given circumstance, And this just puts the experience all the more distant from us. In place of a legal system, the Middle Ages had this array of overlapping legal codes and courts. You've got canon law, royal law, feudal and manorial law, mercantile law, and urban law, which all had their own courts and their own professionals and even their own curricula in the universities. And again, the difference here is not like how a modern lawyer might specialize in corporate law versus constitutional law versus criminal law. Those are different specialties within the same body of law. The medieval equivalent would be more like the differences between a constitutional lawyer, an Olympic judge, and a message board moderator. Indeed, that's probably our closest present-day analogy for what the medieval legal system was like, how we live under the laws of our nation, but also have to abide by the terms of service of many online platforms and follow a code of conduct enforced by our employers or schools, and we might also have to honor the covenants of a homeowner's association or a tenant's union or another organization. But take all of those systems of rules and muddy up any clear hierarchy of which of those systems can override or nullify the others, and now you've got a better sense of medieval law. One result of this legal non-system, this array of legal orders, is the idea of pleading the privilege or benefit of clergy. This was simply the right of a member of clergy to be tried by ecclesiastical authorities instead of secular authorities. Why might one want this? Well, because the ecclesiastical courts were much less likely to impose the death penalty. Indeed, sometimes they were outright prohibited from doing so. Thus, if you're facing a capital crime, you would want to be tried by the church rather than the royal courts. The problem for the courts, then, is determining who is a member of clergy and who isn't. This is a period where you don't necessarily have concrete records of who has received holy orders. And in a trial system that is all about expediency, uh, there are prisons and dungeons, but they aren't meant for holding defendants for months while investigations are conducted and affidavits produced and character witnesses found and so forth um, outside of the highest status defendants. So no one's waiting around for a priest from some faraway church to confirm that the prisoner is ordained. In earlier periods in England, you proved you were clergy by showing that you were tonsured and by appearing at court in your clerical clothing. Costume was nine-tenths of identity, you might say. However, 
such a standard of proof was easily abused, so eventually it was changed to requiring that you read a passage from the Latin Bible, uh, essentially just proving literacy. But for the 13th and 14th centuries, that was pretty good evidence that you were clergy or at least clerically trained. If anything, it was almost too strict, since there were plenty of ordained clergy in England who remained illiterate and would have struggled to pass such a test. Over time, though, this test, too, became subject to exploitation. Partly, that was just because more and more non-clergy were literate as you enter the late Middle Ages and the early modern period, but also the test conventionally used the Miserere May verse of Psalm 51, something one could simply memorize. So it became a bit like people who memorize the conventional eye chart at the DMV so that they can pass the vision portion of the driving test without their glasses on. Nonetheless, the idea of the benefit of clergy as a mechanism for ameliorating a criminal sentence, uh, while it undergoes many more changes throughout the early modern period, wasn't formally abolished in English law until 1827. Oh, and on a linguistic note, apparently the phrase without benefit of clergy has been repurposed in modern popular usage to refer to children born out of wedlock. Uh, But this misunderstands that in the phrase, the benefit is meant to be to the clergy, uh, not something received from the clergy. Uh, But maybe it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek. Anyway, you'll see someone receive the benefit of clergy in the story that follows. But note how the story tells us that this only saves their neck. It does not get them out of all punishment. And for the sake of a bit of suspense, I'm not going to tell you where today's text comes from until after we hear it. I'll have plenty to say about it then. So, without further ado, here is an account of a most unfortunate man taken to the gallows on the 21st of July, 1484. In the year of Christ aforementioned, a certain man, Thomas Fuller by name, was living in the hamlet of Hammersmith, belonging to the parish of Fulham, about four miles distant from the royal city of London. He had no handicraft to support him, and so lived a poor life among country neighbors, procuring food and clothing for himself, and that with great pains, in a moderate degree by spade and fork. Hence, not without cause, he used often to leave his own home and countryside, and wandered about alone, doing the round of other counties, well satisfied if his daily toil won him the necessaries of life. A cruel fate seems to have dogged him, for once, traveling along the hedgerow of a public road, he had for his companion a man who was driving some stolen sheep, and he, little knowing the truth and suspecting no harm, like the simple fellow he was, foregathered with this man in talk and then in lodging, all the more readily, perhaps, because he hoped, being a stranger in those parts, that with him or through his good offices he might find some work in or out of doors to support himself. So he followed him without fear, he who knew nothing of the theft with the culprit, the innocent with the robber. And so, driving the sheep before them, they came to the town that lay before them, that which in the English tongue is called Ickleton, some eight miles within the borders of the county of Cambridge. And at last, through the cruelty of fortune, coming there to a place of entertainment and rest, they were met by a sudden disaster. A posse of officers fell upon them with the forms of law, and both were arrested and chained and led off to Cambridge. And there, as justice will have it, they were cast in a foul dungeon for disturbers of the peace and naughty robbers, and so, loaded with chains, were kept in strict custody. 
and anon they were brought out in public, pale and wasted in body, but still more trembling in their hearts, and came before the judge. No distinction here between just and unjust, between innocent and guilty. Both alike had the same cause to plead and the same chances. For man's desire for justice, or law, is sometimes blind for all its strict care. But what need of words? The jury took their oath and went about the investigation of the matter, dealt with the case before them, weighed and scrutinized it, and upon due investigation had of the witness of others, considered what was the true verdict. By the common vote of all, taken under oath, both the one and the other were accounted worthy of death. No need to say more. The case was referred again to the judge, and there was nothing left for it but the sentence of a shameful death that hung upon his lips. No more chance of escape seemed left for the innocent man. The culprit, meanwhile, lacked not that which the innocent could not come by, for he, the sole perpetrator of the robbery, hearing himself convicted, appealed immediately, claiming benefit of clergy, and at last, at the judge's order, he was handed over to his ordinary, and although condemned to perpetual imprisonment, which he had well deserved, escaped hanging. But alas, what of poor Thomas? He received on the spot the sentence of a disgraceful death, all undeserved as it was, and, so judged, he must be hauled away immediately and handed over to the officers to end his life on the rope before that sunset. So, to cut my story short, a man of sound mind and sincere faith as he was, being now bound to make an end of this life, thought only of those benefits that were to be had in the life to come being all the more concerned for his soul's safety inasmuch as he knew it to be more important than his body's, and also eternal. So he summoned two venerable doctors of that university, and purging his sins by a pure and simple confession, received the grace of absolution and counsel for his eternal welfare. And now he would make provision too for the body that was his earthly tabernacle, earnestly entreating that he might not lack Christian burial. But what of that? Here he is at the foot of the gallows, the crowds have flocked in from all sides. He hears the murmuring and bustling of the spectators, for all of whom he alone, poor wretch, is to make a holiday. And so, before long, his neck was put to the halter. Now he did find himself groaning. Now, so soon to be taken away from earth, his heart clung to heaven. With sincerity and with contrition, he committed himself altogether to the divine mercy, and implored the help of the most loving Mother of God. And furthermore, making mention at the same time of Christ's worthy champion, King Henry VI, whom he considered to be the most speedy succor of the oppressed, as the fame of his miracles showed, he commended to him his innocence and the great wrong he suffered, claiming that he should be his advocate, as he saw him guiltless of any plunder or robbery. He had barely finished that utterance when he was forced to hang himself by his own weight and to meet death so. When this was done and the sentence of the court carried out, the onlookers began to troop home in knots while he hung there in full view till the hour was up, being held for dead already, past doubt, as far as man's mind could judge. Nor, indeed, did any trace of life remain in him. So leave was asked and obtained of the judge for the burying of his body. And then it was plainly seen with what affection of heart and with what confidence he had desired the help of the blessed King Henry, and how efficacious a humble appeal to this famous man could be for the oppressed. In the very middle of the journey, he awoke, as if roused from sleep, and began to draw breath as usual, drinking in once more the air of day. 
Those who followed, astonished at the sight, soon softened their hearts and were moved with compassion and pity for him. And so they chafed his forehead and cheeks with vinegar and tried to revive him, and afterwards restored him somewhat with drink, so that his spirit, a little refreshed, he showed more like a living man and felt strengthened in body and mind. He had indeed tasted all the bitterness of death, yet from the pains of death he had remained all as free as he was pure and innocent of any theft, and this through the wonderful providence of God that protected him for the praise of his beloved and chosen servant, King Henry. Yet would he not, wisely enough, make known how he lived, though they asked him often. He signed to them instead that he had no speech left from the draft they had given him. So they hurried him on, and the drivers hurried on the cart unmercifully, since they were in haste to reach the friar's cemetery, which was close by. There a ditch had been dug in which the body was to be buried. And when they came there, the man, now restored to life, was quickly taken out of the cart and set down. And when he saw that he stood on holy ground, he opened his mouth at last and declared faithfully the wonderful works of God. He burst forth, too, into loud praise of the most glorious Virgin Mary and of Christ's noble champion, King Henry, for it was by his protection he claimed to have been preserved. For so he would have it, and pledged his honor to it, before a large crowd of the friars and the officers and of the vulgar standing by, that he owed to King Henry both the fact and the manner of his delivery. No sooner, said he, was I hanging in the noose with only the strength of the cord to support me, than this blessed and glorious King Henry, by the will of our Lord Jesus Christ that saved us all, and by the intercession of his most loving mother, was sent to me from heaven, and coming to me wondrous quickly, he supported me in his most sweet embrace, putting his hand too between my neck and the rope to prevent the great stress of it upon me, and so most graciously did he preserve me. It was by nothing but this grace of the divine goodness that I escaped the pains of a most unhappy death. So saying, and making all known, to the great wonder and joy of them that stood by, he was received with all love and gentle kindness by the friars of that place, and by their care and great attentiveness, sustained and given to eat, and he spent a whole fortnight among them. So, there's our first gallows tale, and if you hadn't noticed, yes, it brings us back to the source for our first episode in this medieval true crime miniseries, The Miracles of King Henry VI, as translated by Knox and Leslie in 1923. The translators add an epilogue to this tale, stating, quote, No details are given as to his pardon, though if he had been hanged, he would not have needed one. The statement above seems to suggest that he could claim sanctuary in the friary, but this should hardly have been necessary. The miracle became widely known, as was natural in a famous and celebrated place like Cambridge, but Fuller, not content with this, went and told his story at Chertsey and afterwards at Windsor. End quote. They also tell us that the early 16th century investigators into Henry's proposed sanctity looked into this case at Hammersmith and recorded the miracle as verified. But I'm not presenting this story for the miracle. Indeed, as miracles go, this one is particularly unimpressive. Uh, paradoxically so. I mean, on the one hand, bringing someone back from the dead is in the top tier of miracles. But on the other, this particular surprising resuscitation pretty easily lends itself to natural explanations. 
Indeed, there's a recurring theme around hangings in this period, uh, strangulation hangings rather than neck-snapping drops, remember, uh, that an issue with hanging is that it doesn't present the spectators with a clear perception of the moment of death. You decapitate someone, you can make a pretty good guess about when exactly they pass from living to dead. But in a hanging, you have a longer span of time during which the question of whether the person is alive or dead is unclear. Despite, or perhaps because of, the ambiguity about the moment of death we have with a medieval hanging, the gallows are imbued with a profound liminality. They are the locus of a key transition, crossing the line from life into death. And our narrator does a rather remarkable job, I think, of putting us into Thomas's point of view, approaching this moment with greater and greater intensity. You can almost feel time slowing down, like an asymptotic curve as we approach Thomas's death. We get the sentencing and Thomas's sacrament of confession and the negotiations for his burial all in a kind of blur of summary, and then we are with Thomas in as crystalline a present moment as you could hope for. Quote, Here he is at the foot of the gallows. The crowds have flocked in from all sides. He hears the murmuring and bustling of the spectators, for all of whom he alone, poor wretch, is to make a holiday. And so before long his neck was put to the halter. Now did he find himself groaning, now so soon to be taken away from earth. It's liminality that gives the spectacle of the event such power. You witness the before and the after. The same kind of power is at the heart of weddings and inaugurations and graduations. It's why solstices and equinoxes are given such significance, and probably why they are so often linked to festivals of the dead. It probably also helps explain why gallows and paraphernalia of executions, uh, including criminal corpses, were thought to possess supernatural powers. The blood of an executed convict and the parts of their body were thought to have curative powers, uh, akin to a saint's relic. And that's not coincidental. Even though they are criminals, there is an idea of execution as this ultimate rite of purification, that the object that comes out the other side of it is about as close to sanctified as you can get outside of a martyr. Now, does that contradict the idea of criminal bodies being tainted and having to be left for the wild animals to carry off or to be buried at a crossroads, uh, another liminal site, um, or any of these other superstitions? Sure it does. It totally contradicts that. But whoever said folk beliefs are consistent, coherent, or systematic? Well, I guess certain kinds of folklorists have tried. Uh, Anyway, I'd like to come back to the idea of executions and folk magic at some point in the future after I've been able to read up on it a bit more and maybe untangle some of those contradictions. But the idea that people look to a hanging for prophetic signs and significations is actually presented in our second text for today, so keep a lookout for that. Before we leave Thomas, though, I did just want to note how our narrator seems to rather unapologetically, uh, or at least unselfconsciously, live within the liminal ambiguity of this hanging. What did Thomas actually experience? Or, more to the point, in our narrator's understanding of this event, did Thomas die on the gallows? His own tale says that King Henry supported him and spared him from the rope, and he has no afterlife vision to share— But the narrator emphasizes that he did taste, quote, the bitterness of death uh, and showed all the physical signs of death. So is this a miracle of one spared and protected from death, or is it one of resurrection after death? That's a thorny enough theological question that I'm not surprised our narrator hedges his bets and kind of lets it read both ways. 
And of course, the skeptical reader doesn't need Henry's ghostly hand to intervene to save Thomas from asphyxiation. Given the difficulty in accurately determining the moment a hanging victim dies, it wouldn't be too surprising if occasionally a person was cut down without being quite entirely dead. And, by the way, that might be another pragmatic reason for sentences that involved leaving the body to hang until it had rotted away. Decay is a reasonably reliable indicator of death. But that is one thing our story highlights, that in this case, the bodies were taken down, quote, when the hour was up, which doesn't necessarily mean literally one hour, it can just mean the prescribed period of time, but either way, it seems to have been comparatively brief compared to the common practice of leaving the executed body exposed. I don't have data to know if this is unusual for 15th century England. Uh, like I said, in the grand age of piracy in the 18th century, you also have bodies hung up and exposed for days or weeks. So we're clearly not on some linear trajectory towards more and more decorum in public executions. But what I can say is that this text gives us the kind of detail that someone trying to answer that question would need. And that's what's interesting about these two gallows miracles we're hearing today. It's not so much the miracles, but the picture they paint of a judicial hanging. As I mentioned earlier in this series, outside of cases with great political import, we don't actually have good records about the outcomes of the trials of common criminals or details about the executions other than what mode of death was prescribed. Well, actually, by the 15th century, the judicial paper trail is probably a fair bit better than it was for the 13th and 14th centuries, like the cases in our coroner's roles, where we often have little clue what ultimately happened to the accused. But in the late 1400s, we're still about a century away from the vivid broadside accounts of criminal careers and the spectacle of individual executions of infamous villains that came off the printing presses for popular entertainment. We have some visual evidence of how executions were conducted from manuscript illuminations and paintings. Uh, representations of the martyrdoms of saints, for example, often make use of what would have been contemporary medieval practices of torture and execution. But this is another one of those areas where the sheer silence of the written narratives we have suggests that these were not things that needed to be described in any great detail to a medieval audience because they would have been all too familiar with what the process was like. And on that note, let's proceed to our second selection from the miracles of King Henry VI. This one occurred in the same year as the attempted execution of Thomas Fuller, 1484. Knox and Leslie unfortunately have a tendency to abridge these accounts and to insert little summaries of whole scenes from the story in place of the original text. When that occurs here, I'll slip into my editorial reverb. Okay, let's find out what befell a man named Richard Bayes at or near Salisbury on the eve of St. Matthias in the year 1484. And just to clarify one point uh, right here in the opening, we run into one of our common problems in our text, which is a dearth of proper names and an overabundance of pronouns. So while the story is ultimately about a servant named Richard Bayes, the opening is mainly about two rival aristocrats and how one of them framed Richard, the servant of the other. But since the main villain here is just another he in the narration, it's easy to lose track of which he is doing what. Uh, and that's partly because Richard also goes unnamed in the text of the narrative. His name is given instead in the introductory rubric for the miracle. Anyway, in the first part of the story, the main he who is actually doing nefarious things is the rival nobleman and not Richard, the victim, uh, who is identified only as this young man in the first sentence. So I hope that will make things a little easier to follow for you. 
Here we go. Let the reader know that this young man had long been attached to the service of a gentleman of noble birth named Stourton, and, though he was not yet above twenty years of age, or scarcely, was closely bound to him in intimacy and in loyalty, and was indeed his cupbearer. But now, I know not through what turn of fortune's wheel, or upon what occasion, it had so fallen out that another, of very high rank, was greatly incensed against this nobleman. His name, lest I should blot a noble scutcheon, I had liever pass over than record. Certain it is that a very grievous feud had grown up between them, and one thought little likely ever to be healed. Wherefore, at the instigation of the devil, that foul mover of all wrong and calamity, he had the young man aforesaid apprehended by some fellows of his, and, after great affronts put upon him, bound him closely and bade him lie in a foul dungeon. I think that, as many have experienced before now, he was all the more troubled by a spirit of malice as he was greater in power than the other gentleman his rival, and so raged furiously against an innocent victim with no better title than one of rancor and envy. And now it so fell out that the royal judges, who in the name of the king's majesty were pursuing their accustomed rounds as justice demanded it, came to the said town of Sarum, and he was well aware of their coming. Herein, seeing his opportunity for glutting fully that appetite of his resentment, he waited till the king's representatives were sitting in court on the day appointed for them, and then, forgetting justice, but not forgetting the wicked intent he had conceived in his heart, he accused the young man of theft, saying that he had been the accomplice of some that did robbery on a certain priest. And when he had perverted the twelve jurymen that were upon their oath, I know not whether by threats or rather by bribery or by making pretense of a just cause, he had him judged not only guilty but worthy of death. And he had his way. The case went back to the judge when the verdict had been pronounced by his sentence to be ratified forthwith. So it was not long before the unfortunate man was, as guilty of theft, condemned to the penalty of a most unworthy death. He told his confessor, a friar called John Fulbrook, and others that he was confident of escaping death by hanging. A huge crowd of people from that notable city stood by to watch, lamenting in their hearts not so much the death of a young man so handsome and so vigorous as the wrongfulness of his sentence. Forever and anon he cried out that he was innocent. But what of that? The officers never hesitated, but put his head in the noose. So there he stood in the halter, a thick cord around him, and when the ladder was taken away and the whole weight of his body hung only upon his neck, first of all, while every man listened for some sound of omen, his face turned to the west, but then, the rope swinging round, he faced the other way to the east. And now, half dead already, as it may be thought, he smote his breast four times with his fist, and no man but thought he had breathed out his troubled spirit. He had prayed to King Henry before his execution. And at that very moment came King Henry to him, that most loving servant of Christ, and brought him saving help. He appeared even as he had been wont, tall in body, his face full, yet with its features somewhat pinched. But now, his head covered with venerable gray hairs, he was fair enough of aspect. He was dressed royally, a coat as of blue velvet upon him, in which guise his appearance had been reported by many. And, to be brief, 
He seemed so reverend and so glorious to behold that he made the heart glad only by the sight of him. And no wonder, for by the aid of his saving presence, he graciously relieved his servant's necessities, putting his right hand between neck and rope, lest the rope should strangle him altogether by its tight pressure. And although, for the joy of his company, the man seemed already to have found consolation enough, for thus, whatever befell, he felt himself assured at least of a happy passing, he was straightway to have far surer promise of safety, for he saw that God's blessed mother herself was come to his rescue. The very mother of mercy, who is the font of all human consolation, clad, as befits heaven's queen, in a white cloak that was shot with gold, deigned to manifest her presence so lovingly and so solicitously as that she stood upon earth beside him and held him up, her hands under his feet. So pleasant was this to him, so delightful and so salutary, that although by all who stood by he was thought by now strangled to death, for what could they think else, yet his sufferings in the body seemed to him of no account, nor did he feel the very pains of his hanging. What then? Was there any more hope that he should live? He had hung there already for about an hour, and showed no sign of life or sense at all, nor could the people that stood by judge but by what they saw. So at last only a few remained, and the crowd had begun to go home in groups. It is clear, too, that the officers of justice had no other thought than the rest, for these cut the halter without scruple and dropped the corpse to the ground, meaning to bury it with what speed they could. For this good office had been secured for the dead man by one who was then present, who was procurator of the hospital of St. John the Baptist and forerunner of our Lord. But the divine mercy, which had brought help in the fashion we have seen, might not be balked of its gracious design. The man began to breathe again a little, his spirit restored to him, and he revived on the spot in the sight of all that stood by. Here, another bit of the tale is omitted by our translators with ellipses, but no summary is provided. When they who had been entrusted with the execution of the sentence would have had him back to the gibbet again, the crowd angrily prevented them. And this boldness on the part of the common folk was the more increased by the busy endeavors of the aforesaid procurator in his behalf, who had put a cross, which he always carried with him, on the man's breast as soon as ever he touched ground, and now cried loudly that the body belonged to his jurisdiction. So the young man was refreshed with a little drink, and so brought all the way to the city by main force of the rejoicing people, and of the women especially, and that in despite of the sheriff and all his bailiffs. And so he was entertained in the sanctuary of the friar's preacher's house, and there aided not a little by the charity of the faithful until such time as the king's pardon came. And then, having no fears for his own safety or for theirs who ministered to him, he was at last allowed to go free where he would. He dedicated the halter at King Henry's shrine, and then went on to Walsingham to pay his thanks to Our Lady. The chronicler adds that he came from West Harpry, now Harptree, in Somerset, about five miles from Wells. The underlining here suggests that a local investigation was made, or was to have been made, at West Harptree too. So, there's one more innocent person spared the death penalty, not by DNA evidence, but by divine intervention. Neither story reflects particularly well on the medieval justice system, though there are some marked contrasts in the two scenes of execution. However, to start with what they have in common, both proceed with a kind of inexorability that one might call cruel or heartless, 
or maybe simply mechanical. Once the sentence has been pronounced, the march to the gallows and to death must proceed, and its agents are simply instruments, cogs in that machine. Within the human system, at least, there is no opportunity for a last-minute reprieve or change of heart. The process, once begun, grinds onward towards its inescapable conclusion. And there is a sense that the judicial process at this moment ceases to be about right and wrong and simply becomes about the working of the system itself. I think we tend to associate that attitude with modernism. That's what we expect from the arcane, self-perpetuating bureaucracies of Kafka, not the systems of the Middle Ages or antiquity, which, if anything, are usually all too human in their flaws. But I hear Kafka in our narrator's statement, quote, No distinction here between just and unjust, between innocent and guilty, both alike had the same cause to plead and the same chances. For man's desire for justice or law is sometimes blind for all its strict care. But what need of words? End quote. And in describing the feud between masters that led to Richard Bayes being framed for a capital crime, our narrator evokes the image of Fortune's Wheel, another inexorable system beyond human control or influence. I don't have any grand thesis here. I just think it's interesting to observe a medieval writer expressing this kind of lack of faith in the judicial system and a kind of alienation from its results. That said, there's also a deep body of medieval devotional literature on the art of dying well, that is, preparing one's soul for death and meditating on the inevitability of death and the futility of resisting death, and that probably informs our narrator's rhetoric as much as anything else. It matters less how death comes for you, but more with what stoic grace you are able to meet it. And that was a theme of public executions, which Murbach discusses in his book. While the machinery of the execution, or the ritual of it, if you want to use a different lens, proceeds inescapably towards its end, there is a human element capable of changing the outcome. But it's not the judge or the king, it's the convict. The convict can choose to die well or die badly. I touched on this earlier with the idea of the execution as an act of purification of both convict and community, but this is a kind of tension that surrounds each public execution, and certainly something that would have added to the drama of the spectacle. Is the criminal going to show repentance? Will they be like the good thief at the crucifixion, who begs forgiveness and whom we will all witness going off to heaven in that moment of transition from life to death? Or, like the bad thief, will they curse and resist, and we can all jeer them down on their journey to hell? We have accounts of executions that conform to what our pop medieval stereotypes would have us expecting, raucous, jeering, rather barbaric and bloodthirsty celebrations of state-sanctioned homicide, But we also have accounts that reflect the good thief paradigm, where they are marked by piety, where the great anticipation of the convict's death is not bloodlust, but an empathy shaped by a religious life itself, shaped by contemplation of the pains of the crucifixion and of suffering as a path to holiness. Is the gallows a prefiguration of purgatory, the painful path to heaven, Or is it a prefiguration of the torments of hell that the damned is being justly sent to? As Murbach paints it, at least, the situation is a bit like the contradiction of the criminal corpse being either saintly relic or vessel for demons, in that we can see both perspectives operating at different times in the same place, or in the same place at different times. And our texts here bear that out. 
Thomas, the accused thief, is met by a crowd, quote, for all of whom he alone, poor wretch, is to make a holiday. The original Latin that Knox and Leslie has translated as make a holiday is merely spectaculum factus, to make a spectacle, a show. Spectaculum was used to refer to stage shows and circus entertainments, but it was also used to refer to miracles, so we've got a pretty wide field of denotation to work with there. However, I think Knox and Leslie's more carnival-oriented take on the word is supported by the description of the crowd's grandis strepitus tumultusque, their murmuring and bustling, as our translators put it, or a bit more directly, their great din and tumult. Strepitus is a wild, confused noise, and tumultus is an uproar, a violent commotion. It's used to describe both thunderstorms and rebellions. We could, at best, I think, describe this crowd as agitated. Whether it's bloodthirsty and jeering is not as certain, based on our text, but it's not ruled out either. Whatever the precise emotional state of the crowd at Thomas's hanging, it still stands in contrast to that at Richard's, who are, quote, lamenting in their hearts not so much the death of a young man so handsome and so vigorous as the wrongfulness of his sentence. And curiously, this scene plays out against the usual expectations of the theater of the good death, because our convict does not beg forgiveness and show remorse. Instead, quote, forever and anon he cried out that he was innocent. But what of that? The officers never hesitated, but put his head in the noose, end quote. Normally, this kind of resistance to their sentence is what would be met with jeers and the anger of the crowd. After all, the criminal is essentially denying them the reconciliation and purification of blood guilt that a good execution achieves. Instead, we get a crowd that seems to accept that this is an unjust execution, though note that their response is merely to lament it, not to protest it. At any rate, here we have a version of that quiet, almost sacramental execution that Murbach offers as a counterpoint to the street fair, holiday, throw them to the lions and eat popcorn kind of execution that also existed. Anyway, we have to be careful about drawing historical conclusions about public responses to these two scenes in particular, you know, trying to answer questions like, does it tell us something about class differences, Thomas being a poor vagrant, essentially, and Richard being servant to, and thus part of, a noble household? Uh, does that explain the difference in how they're perceived by the crowds? Tempting though such readings are, we must bear in mind that our narrator was eyewitness to neither of these executions. The reporting on what was found by investigations decades later into the alleged miracles and while it's possible that the atmosphere of the execution was a detail preserved in the oral tradition or memories of the witnesses, it's also entirely plausible and conventional that our narrator, supplied with the basic facts of the miracle, conjured up a scene of a crowd that felt appropriate to the story. So there is value for understanding some general features of executions like this in that our narrator is presumably describing them with enough verisimilitude that their own readers would accept them as believable portrayals of hangings in that period. But we shouldn't get hung up, so to speak, on the more minute correspondences. What these two scenes do illustrate for us is the procedure of an execution and how rapidly it runs its course, from sentencing to procession to the gallows to some final statement to the crowd to hanging, and then, in these two cases at least, being cut down and taken away for burial. There's no hesitation or lingering. Our word doom comes from the old English word for judgment. The doom in doomsday is not referring to the destruction of the world, but the last judgment. 
those apocalyptic connotations of doomsday give us our more modern sense of the word doom as inevitable death or destruction, as fate rather than a verdict. But no doubt a person who heard the sentence of death from a medieval judge felt doomed in as rich a sense of that word as we have. And for the moment, that's going to wrap up this miniseries. I actually still have a few crime-related topics that I'll be covering in upcoming episodes. Uh, one will be a look at medieval English vagrancy laws inspired by Thomas's tale, since it's quite possible that his eagerness to look employed by following the false shepherd, so to speak, could well be driven by a practical consideration of not looking like a vagrant wanderer, though in this case it gets him into worse trouble. Uh, but that's more than we can get into this episode, and it turns out to be a bit more than an appendix episode too, so though I may be lowering the curtain on the miniseries, we're far from leaving these topics behind. Part of the reason I designated this as a medieval true crime miniseries, uh, even though by its nature this show routinely runs into tales of violence and murder and mutilation, so we are often a medieval crime show in one form or another, uh, but one reason for the miniseries is to highlight the true part of true crime, which in this case is less about its veracity and more about another way these sources have connected to the modern genre of true crime, which is a focus on things that happened to actual, ordinary people. Sure, medieval histories are full of murders and poisonings and abductions and arson and everything, but generally, these either have political or supernatural significance. In fact, it's kind of hard to find medieval true crime texts that are about the kinds of shocking and yet essentially mundane varieties of violence and criminality that parallel the sorts of largely domestic murders or eruptions of street crime that dominate our own era's police procedural docu-series or journalistic accounts of murder trials, as embodied by shows like The First 48 or American Justice or Murder Maps or countless other one-hour, one-off documentary presentations on famous serial killers or mobsters. We have a media that, since the dawn of the printed broadside, has found there's good money to be made in narrating gruesome crimes. But, to my knowledge at least, and I welcome correction on this because it would give me a lot of good material to use, medieval texts largely ignore these kinds of crime stories. Again, it's not that crime is absent from medieval narrative, but it often comes in through a fictional filter. We have tons of outlaw tales, for example, and no doubt some of them are based on real events, but the actual reality is hard to uncover. They're the 30s Hollywood Jimmy Cagney versions of real gangster history. Now, I should pause here to highlight the Icelandic family sagas as texts that do care about people murdering each other over who owns a particular cow, or just because somebody said something a little too salty after a night of hard drinking. But while the sagas come with much greater verisimilitude than, say, English outlaw ballads or Robin Hood plays, uh, they feel and sound more true to life, a lot of scholarship has called into question their actual historical accuracy. So, Maybe they're not that much less fictional than the Robin Hood tales. Uh, maybe they're closer to the Johnny Depp adaptation of From Hell, uh, the Jack the Ripper movie that says it's based on Alan Moore's graphic novel of the same name, though you'd struggle to find the resemblance. Anyway, maybe sagas are like that, where the names of the people are all real, and their occupations are correct, and the production design is pretty period-appropriate, but we're still a good ways away from meaningful, based-on-a-true-story territory. No doubt... People told and listened to stories of murders and robbers and kidnappings with as much enthusiasm then as we do now. There just wasn't a textual medium to capture most of them. So they really only show up in the rather laconic records of the courts and coroners, 
in histories when historically significant people were involved, and in saints' lives when they become the context for some sort of supernatural intervention. Town gossip and town histories, no doubt, are the seeds of many an outlaw tale or vengeful ghost story or other popular entertainments that might eventually have been written down by someone, but the quotidianness that serves as the signifier of documentary truth in so much of our modern examples of true crime narrative is the thing most lost to us from the medieval experience of these crimes. So, it's a rather rare and remarkable thing to find a particularly rich description in a coroner's account or a miracle tale like we heard today. And I suppose I thought that's why these merited a miniseries. So, as I say, we're not leaving crime behind. Uh, We're not even leaving the coroner's roles behind. But this has given us a chance to focus a bit on the procedural side of crime in an age before police and detectives as we know them. No mystery word for this episode. Uh, It's running long enough as it is. And we'll let the closing of this miniseries be the end cap piece here. If you'd like to find out more about this episode, including bibliographic information for the texts and references cited, you can find that at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email me with questions or comments there, writing to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or if you prefer, you can reach me on Twitter at MDTPodcast. And of course, you can support the show materially through Patreon, where you can find us at Patreon.com slash MDTPodcast. I'd like to acknowledge new and returning patrons since December 2021. Nell, Lindsay, Anon339, uh, Tia, Smizzy Power, or S. Mizzy Power, uh, Babudi Dabudi, Jason, Stephen, Gabriel, and Selena. Thank you all for your support, even through an episode drought. I'm hoping to deliver a much larger summer harvest for you all. So, may King Henry slip his hand between your neck and whatever metaphorical rope threatens it. Happy start of the summer, where applicable, and thanks for listening. <laughs>